We're in a series of, of sermons, talks, teachings, rants, whatever you want to call them, called What About 2.0? We've already had sort of, sort of version 1.0 of this, but what this series is about is the whatabouts of faith. As our faith shifts, as it unravels, as we're deconstructing, whatever language you're comfortable with using, as we're having these experiences for so many of us, it, it just keeps like like you the one thing you talk, like you go down one rabbit hole and it leads to like 50 other rabbit holes, right? The, that's the experience of, we ask one question, we pull the thread and the whole thing begins to unravel to a whole lot more questions. And so today I want to ask the question, what about miracles? And I realize that this is a really touchy, intense topic for lots of people. People usually have strong convictions around this one. And I, I find in most of my conversations over the years, as I've been on this sort of what about journey, um, that people tend to fall in two polar opposite camps when it comes to the idea of miracles. The first are for many Christians, the miracles attributed to Jesus in the New Testament, for example, are definitive proof of his relationship with God. Um, that, that if he, he could heal the sick, that he could exercise unclean spirits, that he could walk on water, that he could calm the storm, that he could, the big one, that he could raise the dead was definitive proof that Jesus was divine, that Jesus was God's son, and that everything that Christians claim about him and have claimed about him for 2000 years is true. And um, the way the other miracles in the Bible work, whether it's, you know, um, somebody being swallowed by a fish or a chariot of fire or whatever else you want to talk about, that all of those other miracles are really important and literal too, because if you begin to take those away, then it threatens the Jesus story. And so if Jonah really wasn't swallowed by a fish and he didn't live in there for three days, then Jesus never existed. That's often the leap. And what happens when you, your faith is constructed around all of this is literally true, when you pull one piece of that truth wall out, the whole thing begins to crumble. And so for some Christians, for some people, the extreme is if the miracles aren't literally true, then all of it's a lie, then none of it really matters. Uh, for others, and sort of the other end of this, the, the idea tends to be a wholesale rejection of the miraculous. This perspective sees any belief in anything resembling a miracle as sort of superstitious and silly. Like if I have to believe that the sick can be healed by the words of someone or just a touch, or if I have to believe that the, those who have been dead for days can be physically raised back into life, then, then I'm out. That's just silly and superstitious, and I want nothing to do with it. Now, look, I, I will just show my cards here. I, I tend to agree that this, a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, I don't necessarily think literally happened. I think something else was going on. But the problem is, is with this perspective is that it assumes that if we can't explain it, if we can't rationally say this is what happened, then it must be false. And I, I think things happen all the time that I can't explain, right? Right? Like, I don't know. I, I, somebody asked me the other day, hey, what about uh, like quantum physics? Like, I, I think that's a thing. I, I can't explain it to you very well, but it's real, right? And so this idea, if I can't explain it, then it must be false and it must be a superstition. It really can shut you off to wonder and it can shut you off to, to be unexpected. Um, so there are just lots of things I don't understand that still happen. Um, so I, what I would say is it's important, I think, to hold on to humility when we're having these conversations, because wherever you come from, if you take, if you believe every story, every miracle that we're going to, um, in, in the Bible attributed to Jesus, especially, if you believe every single one of those happened literally just as it says, but you can't prove that, Right. And if you believe that it's all just silly superstition that was made up a couple thousand years ago by people and that it's so silly that people are still believing it and talking about it, if that's where you land, okay, but you, you can't prove that. 
And so we spend a lot of our time and energy arguing over things that nobody can prove. It, it can't be proven. It's an issue of faith. You either, you either like, have faith in this thing happening or you think it didn't happen. Either way, you, you, you can't go into a court of law and lay down the evidence. No matter how many times Christian apologists try to, you just can't prove it. And so I, I think the problem with trying to get into this argument about did there or didn't they, uh, what it also does is it causes us to miss the main point. Because the point of these miracles isn't the Jesus doing cool tricks, right? The point of the of miracles isn't that Jesus was really great at a party. The point is meaning. The point is what are they saying what what is this particular story where Jesus does this thing what is it trying to say what is the larger thing what's the thing behind the thing the meaning behind the meaning and I think it's helpful and we did a series through uh, the signs in the gospel of John but I think it's important to to bring that language back that in the gospel of John the language is not miracle the language is sign in some translations we'll actually call them miraculous signs but the word miraculous isn't in the, the text that's a, that's a translator's interpretive decision because every translation of the Bible is an interpretation. Every single one is an interpretation. And so that's an interpretation, right? But John uses the language of signs. And what do signs do? Signs point, they aren't the point. The point of a sign telling you how to get to Nashville isn't that you'll stop and just stare at the sign that tells you how to get to Nashville. It's that you'll follow the sign to get to the place the sign is pointing you toward. And I think that for Jesus, the signs are pointing toward this reality he called the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus, when he says kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is not talking about some reality that exists up in the sky where if we are really, really good people, if we believe all the right things and check all the boxes, when we leave this life, we will go up into the sky and to live in this reality called the kingdom of God. That's not what Jesus is talking about. If you remember in the Lord's Prayer, right, the, the, the petition is not take us to heaven to live with you there. The petition is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As John Dominic Crossan often said, says, um, uh, heaven's in great shape, earth is where the problems are. And Jesus' vision of the kingdom was a vision of how the world would be run, how the world would be ordered and organized. Right? A world of equity, a world of enoughness, where everybody has what they need, where nobody is being taken advantage of or harmed, where, where nobody is left outside trying to decide between you know, uh, their own well-being and just survival. Jesus' vision of the kingdom is what all these signs are pointing toward. This is the reality. This is where this could go. This is the vision. And Jesus is embodying and acting, teaching, living out this vision of the kingdom of God. And so I want to offer a third approach to the miraculous. And I want to frame them more as signs. And this third approach is to say, not did or something or did not happen, did, did or didn't something happen. I want to ask a more generative question. I want to ask the question, what does it mean? What do these signs and wonders mean? Because the point isn't just that Jesus could do cool stuff. I love what Marcus Borg wrote. Believe whatever you want about whether or not these things happen the way they're told. Now let's ask and talk about what these stories mean. Because here's the thing. Debating whether or not a human could live in a fish for three days and three nights really fails to engage the meaning of the Jonah story. 
And one of those central meanings, I think, is one of the central meanings of the Bible. And that is if we don't learn how to love our enemies, if we don't learn how to engage our enemies in a healthy way, we are going to be swallowed up by our own violence. And I think that's a very pertinent story for the human species right now on this planet as we keep coming up with new and creative ways to end life on this planet, whether that's through climate change or through gun violence or through war. Uh, we are coming up with more and more creative ways to harm each other instead of ways to bring peace and wholeness to the planet. Arguing over whether or not Jesus gave sight to a, a person that was born blind misses the point. And actually, often our interpretations of those stories are really, really ableist and unhelpful. And I think what we actually are getting in the ancient world is not somebody who's debating whether or not Jesus restored the sight of a person who was born blind. But I think the actual story is that in the Gospels, you find people who claim to have really good sight who are missing it. And often you have people in the Gospels who claim not, or who said they can't really see, they, they can't really understand that they're the ones who get it. They're the ones who see the kingdom. And the ones you would expect don't. Medically diagnosing those who are possessed by unclean spirits in the New Testament misses the meaning of the stories. That they, this, these stories are taking place in the context of a land that is being possessed by an empire, and it is causing great harm to the community. And Jesus is offering an alternative way to exercise the demons of empire, the unclean spirits of empire, not through violence and not through collaboration and their own oppression, but through nonviolent resistance through enemy love. Trying to scientifically prove or disprove that the dead can be raised misses the testimony of the people who are telling these stories and the communities that were behind them, which is in Jesus, they found a new kind of life that transcends, they believed, even their death. I think a lot more is going on in these stories. I think there's a thing behind the thing, behind the thing, behind the thing. I think there's a larger meaning hiding out and being pointed toward that because of years of, of separation through context and through interpretation and culture, we have just not been able to see. We have, we have tried to, to argue about these stories, whether they did or didn't happen, and the meaning has been inviting us the entire time to see what's really going on. And so here's what I'm going to say. Believe whatever you want about whether or not these stories happen literally. I have questions about that. I, I think that, first of all, I think Jesus had a reputation, and this is, uh, scholars across the board will say this, that Jesus had a reputation uh, in history as being a healer. Um, there are some non-New Testament sources, just a couple, who mention Jesus. And when they mention Jesus, there's often something in there about Jesus having uh, the ability to do signs, to do some sort of healing. But here's what I think. I can't tell you whether or not Jesus actually physically healed someone. Again, I have questions about that. I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical that, that that was the case. But I think what Jesus actually did, the thing behind the thing, is that Jesus brought social healing. And he did that by embracing and including those who were thought to be unclean and unworthy of inclusion. Jesus brought people in and close who were uh, who. who most the larger dominant culture was going to exclude. I want to give you a few examples. First, in Mark chapter one, there's this encounter Jesus has with a man with a skin disease. And to understand the gravity of this moment, it, like this man's condition would have made him unclean and it would have made him uh, distanced from the rest of the community. He would have had to stand on the outskirts of the community and announce his uncleanness to anyone who comes near him. And so there's no embrace. There's no um, community. There's no, like, how long since he had been hugged? How long since he had sat at the table with somebody else? 
and had a feast. How long since this human being had felt like he belonged? And so that's where, that's the kind of context and scenario we're in. And in Mark 1, verse 40, a man with a skin disease came to Jesus, begging him and kneeling. He said to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You, you like just enter into the story for a moment. Like, uh, don't just enter into, well, did this or did, no, no, no. Enter into the story. Put yourself there. Imagine you're in the crowd. You're watching this. This man comes before Jesus. He's already risking so much because he's supposed to stay on the outside and the outskirts so he doesn't in- infect everybody else with his uncleanness. And here he is falling before Jesus saying, if you're willing, I think you can help me. Moved with pity. With The better word there would actually be moved with compassion. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing to be made clean. The power of this story is not in whether or not Jesus physically healed a man of a skin disease. I think the power of the story is that Jesus reaching out and touching someone who was untouchable. Jesus going to someone who the whole community knew had been excluded and and it was seen as unclean and placing him in embrace And in doing so, inviting this person back into community and saying to the rest of the community, there's nothing to be afraid of in this person. This person is a child of God. This person has a place in the family. This person should not be alone on the outside. Nobody should be alone on the outside. This person should be embraced. Then there's another story about a woman who was made unclean because of a, a medical issue. And Jesus is on his way to do something else, and he's being pressed in on by a crowd. And this woman has this sense, just like the man with the skin disease, if I can get to Jesus, maybe if I just touch the hem of his robe, I'll be made well. And she crawls through the crowd. Mind you, everybody she touches is being uh, infected with impurity because that's contagious. And she reaches out and touches Jesus and she's healed and Jesus senses it and he stops it. The record scratches and he says, okay, who touched me? And the disciples are all like, there's so many people here. Who, who, how can we know? Everybody's touching you. He's like, no, somebody, somebody reached out with, in, in faith. And in, so who, who was it? And he stops everything. And this woman comes trembling. Like there could be major, major repercussions for this. And instead, Jesus calls her in front of everyone and pronounces her healed. Jesus does that a lot. Like they, a lot of times, the what he does, right, the miraculous moment, there's a, there's a pause and then there's a conversation about it. And I think here's why. Because the people he's healing, the people he's bringing close, people he's embracing have been publicly excluded. And, and in order for this healing to happen and be holistic. There needs to be public inclusion. That's why if you happen to be watching this and you're a faith leader, a pastor, an elder, you serve on a church board, you serve on a church governing body, you attend a church. And that particular community is ambiguous about where they are on uh, the inclusion and affirmation of the LGBTQ plus community. I think it's okay to say, look, you have been publicly exclusionary for so long. You have been publicly non-affirming. Now we need to know, are you going to be publicly affirming? Are you going to publicly um, stand and, and stand in solidarity with God's children who have been excluded and marginalized in the church? Or uh, will, will you make the public statement? It's why it's important for church leaders to be really clear about things like white Christian nationalism, to be able to say publicly that this is not oh 
okay because when there's been private when there's been public damage then we need this sort of public um uh healing and jesus does that in so many of these stories where he's drawing attention to the person not to to focus all the energy on them and exclude them but drawing all the attention on them is a way of bringing social healing and pulling them in closer there's a man possessed by a legion of unclean spirits who lives among the tombs and which is unclean right he's un, un, he's possessed by like thousands of unclean spirits he's living in tombs which are unclean and he's going around howling and harming himself and he's a person who's in deep deep pain and after his encounter with jesus he had been restored and reconnected with his community he had brought in been brought in from the tombs into the life-giving community what might that mean well there could be a lot of things going on there but i think part of it is this is what happens this is what this is the effect of empire on human beings this is the effect of systems of abuse and marginalization and oppression on communities and jesus is saying look if we need to bring in and exclude and include those who've been excluded that brings healing if we're going to undo the damage and pain and suffering the empire has caused us we can't do that if we're against one another we have to do that together in healing community what i find is that story after story miracle after miracle we find jesus calling for the community that that has sort of cropped up around him to embrace and include the excluded ones and that that is an act of wonder working power that that is a miracle um, in john 14 jesus john's jesus actually says i assure you and remember in john jesus is doing these signs seven of them signs like turning water into wine like walking on water feeding the five thousand, performing healings jesus is doing all this raising the dead and then john's jesus says this i assure you that whoever believes in me and that's not like believe in like well i believe in the right theology it really would be better rendered whoever trusts this vision whoever trusts this path Never trust this way of showing up in the world. We'll do the works that I do. They will do even greater works because I'm going to the Father. Even greater. Is there any part of you, when you read those words, you're going, who, who looking around like, who, me? Who, me? I mean, I, I think we probably have quite a bit of imposter syndrome because I know my life and I know that, that I don't feel like I'm ever going to be able to do greater things than I've seen Jesus, than I see Jesus attributed to in the text. I, I, I can't even do small things. I can't watch a YouTube video and do a home improvement without it going sideways. How in the world am I supposed to do this? And yet there's this confidence that Jesus in the Gospel of John, speaking to John's community is, is giving like this, this shot in the arm. You can do this. You can be a miracle worker. You can bring about the transformation of everything. And I think that's the invitation. We're not invited to argue about whether or not miracles happen or, or, or whether that's literally true. No, no, we're invited and equipped to be miracle workers, to be about the work of healing and embracing and in doing so announcing the here and nowness of the kingdom. I think that's been the whole point. The whole point has never been to get all the theology right because who knows? The point for, I think for Jesus and his early followers of his was to create communities that resisted the dehumanization of the empire, that resisted the dehumanization of culture and society that wants to turn us into how much money we make or turn us into how talented we are in this one area. Or like it just wants to focus and turn us into commodities. And the people who don't fit, who don't measure up, the, who, who somehow have transgressed a boundary that makes us feel like they're unclean, like now we push them out and we just create this 
kind of club for all of the happy, bright, shiny people. And that's never been the kingdom message. The kingdom message has always been, there are all these seeds, but, and this is the good news. The kingdom isn't somewhere else and some time else. We actually don't have to wait for the kingdom. We don't have to stand there and wait for it to drop from the sky. The kingdom, Jesus actually says in the gospels, the kingdom is among you. It's around you. It's the, I like to envision like there are these kingdom seeds that have been planted everywhere. And when we water them and tend them and care for them, they begin to sprout and grow. Not once we get rid of the system that's harming everyone. No, no, no. It begins, it's really subversive like this. It's really, it's resistance, right? And these seeds of the kingdom begin to grow right in the middle of sort of this, this garden that has grown up and, is, and has weeds that it's choking the life out of everything and everyone. These kingdom seeds begin to germinate and grow right here, right now. We don't have to wait. We don't have to wait till the moment we die to go to a better place. We don't have to wait until we figure all the theology out. We don't have to wait until it's all nice and neat and simple. We, right here, right now, can engage and bring the kingdom reality into existence because it isn't isn't somewhere else. It's right here and it's right now. And when we engage the the miracle working task upon us of embracing the lonely, of pulling in the excluded, of expanding the borders, of, uh, of pushing the boundaries of who is loved and who is embraced, then those kingdom seeds begin to germinate and grow all over the place. I, I think it's interesting that today, what I see often on social media is people who are shocked that a Christian can engage in a way that is not just honestly being a jerk or, or that's not trying to exclude as many people as possible, that's not trying to bring about some sort of theocracy that's not, they're, they're Christians have a, been behaving poorly in the public square for a very long time. But right now in our country, in the U.S. here, the Christians are behaving maybe in, in some really def- definitively damaging ways to the world. And as long as people are shocked that Christians care about the world, that care about the planet, that care about the poor, that we, that we, that we care about everybody having enough, that we care about issues of, racism and white supremacy and nationalism and that we're, we're, we march, march in pride and we march in protest that as long as that's shocking to people and we know like there's a long way for us to go. But those seeds are planted everywhere. And as we water them through acts of kindness and goodness, when, as we water them through good deeds that, that change the temperature of the world, and bring, bring more goodness and more hope, the kingdom begins to become apparent and invite other people to join and participate in this here and now kingdom. I think that's what miracle working is about. And here's the thing. That means you may not be able to provide healing. You may not be able to walk on water, but you can embrace someone who's been excluded. You can use whatever voice and whatever influence you have to speak and call for justice. You can come alongside those who have been marginalized and oppressed and use whatever privilege you have to work for their equality, equity, and their their rightful place at the table. You and I can do that. We can be miracle workers. Now, a little bit of a postscript, because I know this is something that comes up a lot. What about the unexplainable things that happened to us, right? There, I think most of us have probably had something that happened that it just happened at the right time. We needed something. We needed something to come through and it came through, right? We, we needed something to give us some hope and we got it. We had been hoping and praying and it happened. 
Um, so what do we do about that? Because those kind of things happen, right? Those kind of things happen and, and we can say, well, they're just coincidence and maybe they are. And we can explain away maybe why they happen. But some, what if we can't? What if we can't explain away why they happen? Here's what I, here's what I want to say. <clears throat> Believe whatever you want about that. <laughs> Believe whatever you want about the thing that just worked out like it needed to. Um, if you want to believe that somehow God directed that, that's that's up to you. That's okay. If you believe that it's just sort of a really fortunate coincidence and that's how you want to talk about it, I think that's okay. I, I think the response is that, that's called for is gratitude. I'm just grateful. I'm grateful that that worked out for me. I'm grateful that I was fortunate in that. I'm grateful that, that I was hashtag blessed in that. I'm really grateful that all that went exactly like I needed it to. But I want to give you a caution. So please be grateful. However you interpret it, please be grateful. But I want, to, I want to offer a caution, and that is we really need to be sensitive to people who have not had that experience, but have been in a similar circumstance, and it just didn't go that way for them. And here's an example. I often hear people say, look, I was running 15 minutes late for work, and when I finally got in the car to get on the way to work, where I would have been 15 minutes into my drive, there was a car accident, and it was a really bad car accident, and I'm just like, how, how grateful God protected me by making me 50. I burnt the toast, and God protected me. Okay, but what about the other, what about the person who then took your place in the accident, right? Where was God for them? Was God protecting them? Was God looking out for them? Does God only look out for me and you? Or does God care about other people? And, and this, is what, this is the warning, that if our good fortune or good luck or blessing or whatever language you want to use for it, that if that somehow becomes harmful to somebody else, then it really can't be a miracle regardless of what we believe happened. Because a miracle isn't something that brings pain to someone else. It isn't something that pushes someone else farther away. It isn't something that others someone else. A miracle is something that brings close and embraces and brings healing. And so I think it's really important for us to be sensitive to the experiences of the other humans who have had an experience similar to ours, but it didn't go the way it did for us, if it went really well for us. And it's just to acknowledge that I cannot be a miracle worker in the world if, if I'm making claims that have been harming other human beings who have gone through similar difficulties, but haven't had, it just hasn't gone the way it did for me. Grace Point, I think you and I in this community, we are called to be miracle workers. We are called to be about the work of healing. We are called to be about the work of including. We are called to be people who regularly dismantle the boundaries and barriers that are keeping people away from feeling loved and seen and known and bringing them close and in doing so, watering the kingdom seeds that are all around as it begins to grow and transform our lives and our community. And maybe, just maybe, if we keep engaging in these acts of justice and kindness, compassion, if we keep watering these kingdom seeds, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, we could begin to transform the world. 